Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the faculty chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton, Alan Kornhauser. Hi again, Alan. Hi, Fred. And the Smart Driving Car Summit is still going on. Great turnout here and great subject matter. It's been terrific. Absolutely. It has been a really uh, important day today. Um, the topic areas, especially with respect to uh, paying attention to trying to provide uh, mobility for all is really important. And joining us are a couple of people who are taking part in the summit from Velodyne, a company that is well known for making LIDAR for automated vehicles. John Eggert is the director of Global Automotive and Vidya Devarasetti is the manager of Global Automotive. Thank you for joining us, John and Vidya. Thank, Thank you, you, Fred. Frank. Thank you, Fred. Well, you're showing off some of your latest technology here. John, I'll let you tell us first about what's new from LiDAR. Um, yeah, so the whole story today, I think, uh, besides uh, mobility disadvantaged, I think some of the, the topics covered today were what's practical today, what's going to be happening in the near term. And so our new product lines focus a lot on that. What you're looking at right now is the Velaray, which is our level two, level three sensor for automobiles today. Um, you can take a look at it, it's a very high resolution picture. And what that means if we explain that to the audience a little bit, even though we, we try to stay away from the level two, level three stuff, right Alan? Yeah, it, it's safe and self. Right. So what we're talking about here is, our, is really safety equipment for vehicles on the road now. Right, ADAS and advanced ADAS. Can I say that one, Alan? Yeah, sure. Okay, very good. Of course. <laughs> um, so the idea of these sensors is very high resolution, very long range at a very low cost. Um, as we approach uh, Euro NCAP 2020, there's a lot of use cases where detection of, of uh, pedestrians, detection of bicyclists, talk about mobility disadvantaged people. Pedestrians and bicyclists are at the bottom of the food chain right now. That's why I quit riding my bicycle is because of dangerous drivers. You and a lot of other people. Right. right. And uh, the idea is you can put a sensor that's less than $500 on a car and essentially get the performance of what you used to get on those giant spinning sensors on top of a vehicle. So you're talking, you're talking about less than 500 bucks for this thing. Absolutely. And describe it for us as well, because the design of this is, is very different from anything you've had out before. Yeah, the point of this design is to make it embeddable. Uh, automotive de designers still don't believe that a sensor on top of the vehicle is beautiful. It looks like a camera. I mean, I mean, you don't want to talk about cameras, but it looks like a camera. It does. A it digital like camera. An old school digital camera, right? Or it's like a, a radar, a little bit thicker um, in terms of size. And uh, so the idea is it can be embedded in the front of a vehicle or behind a windshield of a vehicle. We've done work with, with companies like uh, Asahi Glass to embed these in vehicles. So, I mean, right now we're focused on practical deployment of these types of sensors in consumer-owned cars. So, at the price point of 500 bucks, it means that you can actually uh, rank up uh, volume and build up volume on this really pretty quickly, right? Is that what I should be assuming? That's absolutely the intent, to build up volume in the tens or hundreds of thousands and go well below $500. And Vidya, tell us the, the plans for this technology, working with uh, with car makers, I, I assume, to get this built into vehicles. What can you tell us? That's where it really makes sense, uh, because in order to make these publicly available to con consumers, so it has to be 
like John said, it has to be low cost, high resolution, and then long range. So we are working with um, all of the uh, OEMs, big OEMs, top uh, 10 OEMs, to get this embedded into their programs and then into the uh, consumers' hands. This is really a, a just another, I don't want to say just another safety feature, but an important new safety feature. It, it is the eyes of the cars, that's how I see it. For those who aren't familiar with it, maybe maybe even for Elon Musk, some, some advice, it's, it's, we're joking about it, but Musk had comments that, that, that LiDAR wasn't the future not too long ago. Tell us why you feel it is and what we should all know about it. Well, I mean, it is rather limiting to just say cameras and radars only. I mean, the whole problem is, is a Venn diagram. There's some gaps that LiDAR cannot fill that radar and camera naturally fill, and there's gaps that all three sensors don't fill that maps will fill. So, I mean, it's just it's a way to make it a much more robust and redundant system, which is absolutely necessary for automotive functional safety, which is what the automakers absolutely de uh, demand. And with what you're doing on pricing, why not have, I guess I'm just throwing that out there, why not have all of the safety features that you can have if, it, if it's not adding an enormous amount to the price of a vehicle? Absolutely, that's the philosophy. If you can uh, get a sensor suite, you know, less than $2,000 for all of these sensors, it doesn't make a lot of sense to start making the cars much more safe than they are today. Um, what we hear from consumers is they're willing to take a, sorry, a level three system and pay, what's it, something like $3,500, 25% of consumers are willing to pay that much for those kinds of features in a car. So maybe the time is right for us to have these sorts of sensible solutions. So can you tell us what the response has been from the OEMs at your $500 uh, unit price? And to me, it seems like uh, they should be very happy. Even Elon might want to buy a bunch at, at that price. Uh, what, what can you tell us? No comment on specific OEMs, but absolutely, there's a very good response, and hopefully we'll have some good announcements for you for uh, consumer-owned cars with Velodyne LiDARs on them in, in coming months. For people who aren't really familiar with this technology, give us a little bit more in-depth picture of what what LiDAR brings to the to automotive safety here. Uh, simply put, LiDAR gives you a, a CAD model of the environment around the vehicle in real time. That, so cameras will estimate what's around you, where a LiDAR actually measures it in very high, de high uh, definition. And it's working with the obviously the software in the, in the vehicle the computer equipment in the vehicle to if you're if you're on an, if you're fully automated to take action or in, in other cases to tell drivers that they should be taking action right um, and Velodyne is actually working on software solutions as well we announced at CES our Vela software stack that would also take over some of the decision making and control aspects and is that designed to work with with this piece of equipment that we're talking about today that that it's going to if I if I buy a vehicle with your technology in it tell me what my experience is going to be like yeah the the idea is that it would work with any point cloud right now it, the Vel, Velaray works uh, with the Vela 
but um, really we're leaving it up to the customers to decide. I think some of our more sophisticated OEMs are wanting to develop their own software, but some of the folks who are just starting to get into higher levels of ADAS are wanting more uh, overall solutions, and that's where Velodyne comes in with software. So what's the horizontal and vertical field of view of this um, since it is flat? Or if that's not a proper question, then we'll strike it. <laughs> Very proper. Um, the, the field of view is 120 degrees horizontally by a little over 30 degrees vertically. So with respect to that, I guess we heard some facts, uh, some data from IIHS today in the, in the um, summit. That that was that's very revealing about existing automated emergency braking systems, in that um, in that uh, they are explicitly turned off at certain speeds. And while I'm not sure if it was said explicitly, the reason I guess they're turned off is because their false alarm rate is so high, um, or it gets to be high at those speeds uh, that. Uh, uh, to avoid the false alarms, um, uh, the OEMs have just decided to write code in there and say, turn it off. I, I, I've made the argument that the, the reason this is, is that, is that as you're driving down the road, you encounter enormous numbers of stationary objects. Uh, some of them are trees by the side of the road. Others are overpasses. And, um, and um, you can't go braking every 100 overpass, even if you did a one in a hundred overpass, it's too often. And it's because they haven't been able to determine whether or not they can pass underneath it. Is this going to help them pass underneath it? Do you think? Absolutely. I mean, the resolution of this sen uh, sensor is in uh, millimeters. Accuracy is within a, a couple of centimeters. So yeah, I think that works. So if, I, I would suspect that if they implemented this as a sensor, then in fact they can, call, they can solve the automated emergency braking problem, the, the, false, the false alarm problem, because now they'll be able to determine whether or not it's a parked fire truck there or it's an overpass that's 15 feet, 4 inches uh, in height, and they can pass underneath it, and therefore it's all fine and they won't turn it off. Right, and, and that's the intent of bringing a low-cost, high-resolution sensor to the market. Let me ask you, and Alan, me, if I may. To me, that's a, an enormously valuable thing, because where we sit right now in, in what I call self-driving cars or safe-driving cars is that the automated emergency braking system, you aren't confident that it's going to work. And in fact, yeah, it might work at low speed, but at some other speed, all of a sudden, it doesn't work. And it how doesn't. Do tell, how do you tell that to a consumer with a vehicle that they, they're relying on the automatic emergency no, braking? They have no idea. And, and what they probably should be doing is announcing, you're going so fast now, the uh, automated emergency braking system's not working. You're going so fast now, the automated emergency braking system's not working. You're going so fast. And can you imagine? They'll take it back and they'll say it's a lemon. Nobody will buy that. That's why they don't do that. Of course that's why they don't do that. Yet they turn the damn thing off. And, I mean, that's, I don't want to call it a crime, but that's close to a crime. And the reason is is because whatever they're using to detect, they can detect relative velocity very well. And they know what their current speed is. So anytime you see anything ahead of you that is of a relative velocity of your speed, you know that it's stationary. 
well, what kind of stationary things do you run? Do you see going down the road? Well, it's an overpass. It's a traffic light. It's an overhead uh, branch. Okay, and if I can't tell whether or not I can pass underneath it, well, I can't take that input and say, oh my goodness, start applying the brakes, because then I will take my car back and call it a lemon. And so therefore they've turned it off. Most of the time it is a traffic light and a tree or an overpass. Every once in a while, it's a parked fire truck. So if for $500, that problem can be solved? I don't know. It seems to me, I'm just asking the questions here. It seems to me that, that now with, with a better sensor, I think it's the problem with the quality of the sensors. They aren't reliable enough. With this, and in which it gives you position um, and, you know, with that velocity, really, and approach velocity with respect to these things as you look at them over time, you should be able to determine not only an envelope or an area in which you can drive a cert, you can drive on where your lane is, but how much of a, of a vertical envelope you have ahead of you, a tube that you can pass through. If there's a tube that you can pass through, you should go ahead and do it. If all of a sudden that tube is blocked, you should apply the brakes. That's automated emergency braking in its simplest form. And this should allow them to finally be able to do it well so that they don't turn it off. That's absolutely. I like the tube analogy, and that's absolutely what you want to do. You want to make sure that tube is not breached. And so one of the challenges of, of LIDAR detection and all, all sensor detection is the cut-in scenarios, right, when, where that tube is breached. And we think with a wide-angle, high-resolution LIDAR sensor, you can start approaching those problems. Well, you, you'll do the cut-in, too. I'm talking about a much simpler problem. Open road, nobody in front of you, boom. You know, there's just an overpass ahead. Hey, this thing doesn't know that the thing is 14 feet above or sitting at the ground. So, hey, am I going to apply the brake? If I'm not sure, then I'm not going to apply the brake. So, therefore, turn it off. I mean, that's the way the code's written. Now, is this and the way Velodyne is approaching its sales to the OEMs that you were talking about that you're talking to? That you can say, you've got, some of you anyway, have automatic emergency braking. This is going to enable it to work at any speed. Uh, yes, that's well, exactly. I would suggest you do that. I think that might be a good thing for you. What, what do I know? I'm just a professor here. What the hell? You know? Don't go away yet. <laughs> that's exactly the approach we're taking with our, our automotive customers. The beauty of it is they've they've all grown up using Velodyne data, and they know how to make that data work for them. And now with a solution that's practical and affordable, uh, we think we can move forward pretty rapidly. I should say, I should say that the cars that the automated emergency braking systems don't work don't have uh, a LiDAR system on them. And the reason why is because the LiDAR has been too expensive. If this thing is 500 bucks, it might not be as cheap as they because they mark it up by 4 billion percent, who knows what, whatever, you know. But, you know, it, it's approaching a point in which, really, we have to have this, this work. We cannot have cars going down the road and 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 not using their turning off their automated emergency braking systems this is what got uber in trouble with elaine herzberg and so on and so forth right. come on we, we've got to get we, we've got to make this stuff work and beyond the self-driving model what we talked about at the summit today one of the one of the subjects with with insurance this this stuff has got to become mandatory well, i mean well, we, we have to have seat belts whether it's mandatory or whatever, at 500 bucks, I would think 
uh, Mike's Root Auto and, and any insurer would want to put this in vehicles, especially any vehicle that's purchased by by a a, um, a teenager by his by his or her parents. Come on, I mean the expected liability of of that individual is three four thousand bucks a year. What the hell? You put this in, uh, uh, you amortize it over three years or over their teenage years. I mean, people make money off of this. I don't John, know. I think you've sold this OEM. <laughs> <laughs> so it only feels logical for OEMs to put it on, uh, and they are trying. So with this low-cost, uh, high-resolution, long-range sensors, any, any it does about make when sense. We, when we might see this actually on the market in, in vehicles? Um, I know you're not announcing we, deals yet with OEMs, but do you anticipate this year, next year? Probably in uh, three to four years now, from now. So is, I assume you've got this in vehicles and you've, you've been testing it and whatnot. Are you seeing a difference in, in the automatic emergency braking, the way this, the way this ha can handle it? Well, yeah, it's mainly our customers who are, who are putting them into vehicles right. and testing them, and definitely the results are very strong so far. Terrific. For more information on what you're doing, where can our listeners go? Velodyne.com. And it's V-E-L-O-D-Y-N-E.com. Vidya Devarasetti and John Eggert, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, Fred. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure. Yep. Our guest now is Curtis Hodge, an economist with Local Motors. Thanks for joining us, Curtis. Hey, thanks for having me. And we are sitting in one of your creations here. Tell us a little bit about the company. Yeah, welcome. So uh, I work for Local Motors, which is a technology company, an American company, and we design, build, and sell vehicles. And the vehicle that we're sitting in now is our current flagship product, Ollie, which is a low-speed automated shuttle. It's O-L-L-I. And describe it for us. How, how big is this? Uh, very comfortable. but Yeah, so in terms of the physical footprint of the vehicle, it's about the size of a, a Mini Cooper in terms of its physical footprint, but it actually seats uh, eight passengers inside. Eight passengers, and all you have here is a screen and something with a joystick, it looks like. Yeah, so Ollie is one of the first commercially available vehicles that is designed to be a fully automated vehicle from the ground up. So... Um, the vehicle uses a variety of different technologies, um, LIDARs, radars, cameras on board the vehicle to sense the environment and uh, uses uh, the software system on board the vehicle to drive through a virtual world. And there's a lot of visibility here, a lot of glass. Yeah, it's kind of a glass greenhouse all the way around the vehicle. And you mentioned um, we have just a few driver controls inside the vehicle. That's really just so... Under the current regulation, our onboard steward can monitor the vehicle system and uh, make sure everything's uh, running appropriately and act as a consumer ambassador. And the way you build these is pretty unique. Yeah, so the company was designed with the idea that um, basically how would Henry Ford design a car company if he was starting a car company today? And the answer was he'd do it over the Internet. So we do uh, the design and manufacturing of this vehicle in a very different way compared to big OEMs. We actually crowdsource uh, the design of these vehicles in an online community of over 200,000 different co-creators from around the world. So those people are designers, engineers, and builders. And we get the best of these ideas from this community and then actually build them in a small factory about the size of a Walmart footprint called a microfactory. And in these factories, we have some of the world's largest 3D printers that actually allow us to build the entire vehicle structure right within that small factory locally in your community. 
And Alan, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were up in Buffalo when they unveiled a, a new service at the university there using Ollie. Right. On, on August uh, 9th, uh, the University of Buffalo uh, basically acquired one of these and put it in its research program. And they, we had the ribbon cutting and it was uh, all very nice. And, and since then, uh, the University of Buffalo has been doing research with uh, with these systems, um, having them operate um, in all sorts of weather conditions and seeing how well they do or don't do. And you've been talking about not only automated vehicles, but ride sharing and the need for it, for all of this to make sense. This, this vehicle is made just for that. Absolutely. It's made to be able to do ride sharing. And, and of course, it accommodates uh, uh, everyone. It uh, really has an opportunity to provide mobility for everyone. And what uh, its role here in the, uh, in the summit is that we're using it uh, to uh, basically allow uh, people of, uh, that haven't been served very well by our current uh, uh, technologies, mobility technologies, to be able to kick the tires, see one uh, uh, up close and personal, uh, not be afraid of it. Uh, and so, uh, and we're basically uh, seeing what their reaction is. Well, Curtis, tell us what types of environments Ollie is designed for. This isn't designed to be uh, tooling down the New Jersey Turnpike, I don't think. No, it's not. So we really thought about designing this first generation of Ollie for uh, local mobility, specifically starting first on campuses. So you can find these Ollies driving around places like college campuses, military bases, amusement parks, uh, enclosed gated communities in um, the first instantiation within kind of a, a couple mile radius. Uh, we're coming out with a new version of Ollie in the near term that is going to be able to take that further and hopefully onto more public roads to serve the first and last mile um, to public transit or areas around the downtown core of a city, for example. But it's really always meant to be relatively low speed and local in its operation. It's not really meant to be in, in Ollie form uh, driving on the highway. That's not ruling out the possibility of you coming out with other types of vehicles, I assume. That's right. So uh, I can't reveal too much at this time, but there's you know future ambitions for other um, types and styles of vehicles that our business may come out with in the future. Well, yes, uh, we're going to do a bunch of things in the future. I think what we have to do is do things now, and I, what this vehicle allows us is to provide mobility now. As I look at this vehicle, there's no reason why it couldn't be running around Princeton providing mobility between Princeton Community Village, uh, uh, Nassau Street, the Dinky, uh, Princeton University, um, uh, the various other uh, um, elderly facilities that, that exist in Princeton and, and all of our um, uh, affordable housing units and it could basically be running and a fleet of these could be running here on in, in Princeton providing mobility so that uh, people who live here can go get a quart of milk uh, go get their hair cut uh, go do a little shopping uh, uh, go get a little bit of entertainment and um, and not have to own a car so uh, there's no reason why this vehicle right here couldn't operate on streets that are owned and controlled by the Princeton community or the West Windsor community 
And uh, yes, uh, maybe we'll have to get permission to cross Route 1, but uh, darn it, uh, feds or state or, or county, uh, give us permission to cross Route 1. Why couldn't it be done? And we were talking about the people with disabilities, the mobility disadvantaged. This is a very wide door, we should point out, to, to get in here, and you've got this set up right now with ramps. I assume something even could be automated in that regard. Right. So we're, we're looking at a bunch of different technologies to make the vehicle uh, more accessible to people with varying abilities. So everything from um, technologies that enable people with mobility impairments, visual impairments, auditory impairments, or cognitive impairments to ride in and communicate with the vehicle. Um, we've run a couple projects um, at CES. We ran an accessible Ollie project with IBM and the CTA Foundation that incorporated about 20 of these technologies, including an automated wheelchair ramp and restraint system, audio loops built into the vehicle, a sign language avatar, and, and others that allowed people to communicate with Ollie and, and really have a tailored experience to better serve them. And this is an electric vehicle, right? Yeah, it's it's a fully electric vehicle, and just just going on in terms of the accessibility features, we're we're now commercializing that technology that we did in that research phase, beginning with a automated wheelchair ramp and restraint system, and in this commercial v version of the vehicle that'll be coming out over the next 12 to 16 months. Well, if you do that, which you're going to do that, then all of a sudden uh, people don't have uh, disabilities. Uh, they can use it, uh, okay? Uh, and what you're doing is is designing these systems so that um, all people can use them. And so they don't have disabilities, and we won't even have to talk about them having disabilities. They'll be able to go <coughs> get their hair cut or go to the dentist or go to, to shopping or go to the other things that... We all do normal life uh, just because we happen to have a car. And are they running typically all day long on a charge? Yeah, it really depends on the environment, um, depending on the, the, the temperature, obviously, in a very hot or very cold place. That you're, can affect you're up them. in Buffalo with these. <laughs> yeah, so we're, I mean, we're based in Arizona. We also work up in, uh, up in, in Buffalo and then also in my homeland of Canada. We're, we're looking at some deployments, too. So it can be affected by the range, but typically we've designed the vehicle, especially this commercial version that's coming out in the future, to be able to serve um, a, a route for all day autonomously. Look, we can't even drive our own cars in all weather. I mean, the governor here this winter uh, uh, closed down commercial trucking at least twice because of impending snowstorms uh, that never arrived. And what? Never mind. That's a, that's a detail. But look, I mean, uh, uh, nothing is a hundred percent, and uh, what this vehicle can do is provide an enormous amount of mobility to a group that has been so uh, uh, hopelessly left behind by the current technologies that we have. Can you talk at all about some of the deployments that you have out there uh, today? I mean, we talked about the University of Buffalo, and uh, there are more. Sure, right. So we have uh, a variety of different deployments around the U.S. Probably uh, the one that's most uh, quickly coming online is at the Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall with the U.S. military in Arlington, Virginia. We have two Ollies running around that military base coming online Sacramento State um, in Sacramento, California. We have Ollie's running around the campus there, serving uh, a route for the students on campus so they can they can ride around. Um, we also have a vehicle at Cal Expo in Sacramento that is riding around and providing mobility for the, the people that are coming for um, the the fair and the other events that happen at that deployment site. So 
we see a wide variety of use cases, different types of audiences and groups. It's not just one uh, rider group that's using this vehicle. It's really all ages, all abilities that this mobility solution can impact. And we plan to take that further by um, starting to integrate future services in with um, public transit networks in cities. Terrific. Now, tell me, are there attendants on board most of these vehicles, or are they, are they completely driverless? So today we have a, uh, a, a new type of role called an onboard steward, and that individual basically rides on the Ollie um, and acts primarily as a customer ambassador, answering questions for the riders about the experience of the vehicle, how does it work, how does it operate. They also act as a safety driver, uh, monitoring the vehicle systems, and essentially under um, current regulation in a lot of places, we effectively have to have that person take on the role of being the so-called driver of the vehicle even though Ollie's driving itself. And the hope is eventually, for the economics of all of this, that that can change and they can operate fully uh, autonomously and without, without a, an attendant. That's right. So the attendant will move off the vehicle, although we're still going to have humans in the loop monitoring the vehicles remotely through a remote fleet management system. So kind of like an air traffic controller, you can imagine people um, watching live streams of um, video from the vehicles and maybe leveraging some tools like AI to help us identify um, actions and activities as they happen within the vehicle with either the riders or the vehicle systems themselves. So the system will become more and more automated as we begin to commercialize it. Can you share with us uh, much about pricing? Uh, sure. At a high level, um, these vehicles are in, in a pre-commercial stage now. Um, we're, I can say in, in ballpark, we're in the same range as most of the other automated vehicles in the the sector and that they're more expensive than what you would find uh, on a consumer vehicle level. So the range for these types of vehicles right now today is anywhere from about 325000 to $400,000 for this vehicle. Uh, but that's at our relatively low production volumes. We're anticipating those prices falling dramatically as we start to produce the vehicles at higher volumes and they begin to really offer commercial services in the near term. And really it's a trade-off between, um, you know, having a, uh, a high labor cost with a, maybe a more traditional vehicle versus the benefit that these fully automated solutions can provide. We think that the, the operating economics will flush themselves out pretty quickly once we're able to offer these vehicles without um, the steward on board and able to offer full autonomous services. Alan? Sounds great to me. And for more information, where can we go? Visit us at localmotors.com. Just like you'd expect, L-O-C-A-L-Motors.com. Curtis Hodge, congratulations on all this success, and thank you for taking the time with us. Hey, thanks for having us. It's been great. And thank you for bringing the, the Ollie to New Jersey. Uh, it's a first view for people in New Jersey. Next time, uh, we'll bring it and keep one here. It'll be here to stay. So Absolutely. We're doing it, okay? We're doing, We're doing it. it. Cheers. We're doing it. Thank you. And that's it for this special edition of the Smart Driving Cars podcast. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening.